Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com slash smartest for your free audiobook download. We didn't go see Richard Chamberlain. Oh, you already start? (laughs) Let's start with we didn't go see Richard Chamberlain. Uh, hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, takes to the ether here from the Porpoise of Fruititude, uh, located in the show business area of Los Angeles. You may hear odd banging and clanging and stuff like that. Uh, that's just the, the nature of this neighborhood. Uh, we're, we're embattled here. Uh, I'm sorry there was no South by Southwest. Uh, Proopcast, uh, I got very ill and I was unable to breathe or talk or walk for several days and I was, I had to cancel. So if you didn't get to see me at South by Southwest, I apologize. Hopefully we'll get back to Texas one day. Uh, I have done three, two podcasts from Austin. So, Hey, uh, and as for the people who were, uh, terribly hurt and, and killed in that awful accident there, that's just a shame. Uh, what, what an awful incident. And once again, it proves that uh, drinking and driving is not, not that great an idea. Um, in any case, uh, I'm here at the purpose of fruititude and, uh, on the mend, as we say, uh, there's nothing like antibiotics and, uh, lethal doses of brandy to really bring you back around and revive you. Uh, the porpoise has uh, uh, been mostly shut down for the spring, but we're, we're reopening as the winter months come. We were in New York. I'm glad. Thank you for all the very nice emails and tweets about the chat show episode. Uh, it was a one-time only, and we were very excited to do it. Uh, New York was polar Arctic cold. And speaking of Arctic, I've had a 1,000 people tweet me and email me. I said on my last uh, uh, Greg Proof's Film Club that uh, the only decent, or might have been the last Proofcast, I get so confused, uh, that the only decent Arctic movie was White Dawn. And I've had a million people email me because I was talking about the movie Ice Station Zebra and say The Thing by John Carpenter. I would like to point out that it was an Arctic film. However, that was in the Antarctic. So, uh, yes, the movie The Thing by John Carpenter is one of my favorite John Carpenter movies, if not my favorite John Carpenter movie. And, as you know, I'm sick with Kirk uh, Russell. I have it in my blood. I have it in my vein. If you do the blood test that's performed in John Carpenter's The Thing where the blood lays on the table and you have to put the weird live wire in it and the blood screams everywhere, that's what happens to me when anyone mentions Kurt Russell. I saw the movie Dark Blue. That'll give you an idea of how sick with Kurt Russell I am. I've seen Captain Ron maybe a million times. I love Kurt Russell. Uh, call me Snake. Um, I love uh, Escape from L.A. I love Escape from New York. Uh, I, I Big Trouble in Little China. Um, Tango and Cash. Uh, if I was, uh, again, uh, Jeff Davis, who I've mentioned far too often on this podcast, who you'll find on the Harmontown podcast, is the comptroller with the genius Dan Harmon, uh, does a very good impression of Jack Palance at the beginning of the movie at Tango and Cash. And we do it quite often for each other, but he mostly he does it for me. Uh, Jack Palance at the beginning of the movie Tango and Cash does Tango. They tango in. What does it think? They, they get the cash and then they tango out. I can't really do it. There's a lot of slobbering involved. It's quite good. It's like watching a Rottweiler in the movie The Omen. And uh, it's a. But uh, I, I will. Uh, and I love uh, Goldie and uh, Kurt uh, for keeping it real. Uh, my favorite thing about Kurt Russell, and if I've mentioned it before on the show, I apologize, is when he made the movie Dark Blue, which was his version of Training Day, I guess he saw Training Day. And uh, was pretty excited about it. And so he made a corrupt cop movie, except instead of the cops being uh, inner city um, black cops or whatever, they were uh, Irish cops in L.A. Sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, what was the, what did they say in Trinidad? That hard charging rampart shit. Uh, 
And so they were all corrupt in that one. And my favorite part when he made that movie was he said, I wanted the movie to be really real. So I didn't wear makeup. And I thought if there's one thing that makes a movie real for me, when Kurt Russell plays an LA detective, it's that he's not wearing makeup. Suddenly it all made sense. If I see makeup on an actor, I'm like, what is this all about? What are they, clowns? Why don't you just be Jimmy Stewart in The Greatest Show on Earth, who, spoiler alert, uh, plays a clown in the movie with Betty Grable and Charlton Heston. We may not have talked about Greatest Show on Earth, but if we haven't, we first of all, Greatest Show on Earth was Best Picture. And I don't know what was up against Greatest Show on Earth that year, but I assure you something was better than The Greatest Show on Earth. It's a movie about a circus made by Cecil B. DeMille. And Cecil B. DeMille was approximately 400 when he made the movie. Um, they're in a circus. Betty Grable's, I think, the high wire artist. Charlton Heston is the straw boss. So he wears a little fedora and a leather jacket. And I think it's his first or second movie. So he's... We've got to put a circus on. Like, there's no joy in him at all. That's what the best part is. It's supposed to be a circus. But Charlton Heston's acting like he's giving birth to a taper out of his penis. And, you know, like a lot of pain. Then at the end of the movie, and I'm spoiling the whole movie for you, by the way, there's murders going on. Because if it's not enough that it's a circus... Someone's killing people and it turns out or, or there was a murder committed. It turns out it's Jimmy Stewart. Yes, James Stewart, who plays a clown. Somehow you're not supposed to recognize him because he's wearing the clown makeup. You see, he's been hiding in the circus and no one's picked him up or recognized him because he wears white face. Even though he's a six foot four actor who, who t- talks like this, no one has managed to find James Stewart. At the end of the movie, the, uh, the train crashes and the train lands on the train crashes animals, you know, as giraffes, whatnot. Uh, the, the train basically lands on Charlton Heston and is laying there sort of half covered with a train car. And uh, they come up and they're like, can we get you anything? And he's got get out of here. We've got a show to put on. So the show must go on is the point of that movie. And it's really good. Uh, but they wore makeup in it. So, you know, the realism kind of went out, went out of it for me. Uh, in any case, uh, you may have noticed we're doing it in the porpoise again. And that's because, uh, we didn't get the South by Southwest one out, but I wanted to do a proof cast for all y'all. This is getting to be, as, uh, Alan Sherman said in the sixties, this is getting to be a rabbit with me because that was a, that's for you anyway. Happy Easter. Uh, what was it? You were the cutest bunny at the Playboy Club, but you're getting to be a rabbit with me. Oh, yeah. Alan Sherman. Uh, look it up, bitches. He did um, uh, Camp Granada to the tune of a very famous classical tune that escapes me at the moment, but I'm certain it was... Alan Sherman was a very funny man. He looked a lot like Drew Carey, except he was Jewish. And he passed away when he was about 48. He was quite heavy. And his first album was called My Son... Alan Sherman's Mother Presents... My Son, the Folk Singer. It's all Jewish humor. The second album, my, Alan Sherman's Mother Presents My Son, the Big Deal Celebrity. <laughs> and recorded live in front of a live audience full of famous Hollywood people. And then on the cover, he's wearing, uh, in that one, this my Big Deal Celebrity one, he's wearing, uh, they've, they're all like, they're pretending they're like going to play polo. And the daughter, his daughter's got a polo mallet in her hand. And Alan Sherman wrote the notes on the back and it says... Um, uh, my daughter's holding a, a polo mallet because it's, it's an emblem of our family motto with mallets toward none. Oh, yeah, buddies. It's good. It's good. It's good. 
shake hands with your uncle Max, my friend, and here's your cousin. Said, oh yeah, it's it's a lot of Yiddish humor. If you if you like the word halva in a comedy routine, I think Alvin Sherman is really where they go. Streets of Miami, what is it? I, which, which is supposed to be the streets of Laredo. Which you won't know anyway, but the streets of Laredo is the one that goes, so bang the drum slowly and play the pipe lowly. As I walked out on the streets of Laredo, as I walked out on Laredo one day, I saw a young cowboy all wrapped in white linen, all wrapped in white linen, and as cold as the clay, right? There's a dead cowboy. In this one, it's two Jews who go to Miami Beach, and they're Miami, and they fight each other. And what does he say? I'll stay at the Fountain Blue, and then this is the line I'll never forget. Podna, it's Modner. Um... And then he shoots his partner and he says, I saw Sammy crumble like peace halva. Uh-huh. There's really not enough Yiddish humor in the world anymore. And that's what I'm trying to bring it back with Alan Sherman. You'll remember Alan Sherman. In any case, we, ha- we get letters here uh, and smartest.especialthing.com. Oh, I have questions too. I was going to go answer them. I'll go get that in a minute. Uh, that's fanmail for Greg at gmail.com. If you want to ask us a question, it's smartest.especialthing.com. And I'm going to answer a couple of today if I can go find them. Uh, fanmail for Greg at gmail.com. It's in the, just bring the, it's in the silver. Thank you. Uh, and I, I had a letter from a fellow and I read it in the last show and his name was Ray Stewart the second. And I read it out loud, and everybody really enjoyed it, I think, uh, because Ray Stewart uh, is an actor. You can IMDB him. I don't know why he's Ray Stewart the second, I guess, because his dad was. And he mentioned all these fantastic people that he had seen over the years, including Gore Vidal at the Rocky Horror Show. And I posed the question on the show, what the hell was Gore Vidal doing at the Rocky Horror Show? And how did he meet Jimmy Stewart and all these people? Thank you very much. That's exactly it. And uh, he, he wrote me back. Uh, Ray Stewart the second because I wrote him oh there he was yeah Lies at the Walder Tennessee Williams at Sweet Bird of Youth Gore Vidal at the Rocky Horror Show Catherine Hepburn at Lincoln Center and uh, he wrote me back so I wrote him because he said he saw Xavier Cugat and Ray Charles and all that jazz and it reminded me of people I'd seen and it also reminded me of um, his letter here and so he writes Ray Stewart writes there's another question here, but let's not let's not fuck about. Let's jump right in here. Oh golly, if you can find the questions, they're in there somewhere. Um, Ray Stewart writes me and says, "Dear Greg, I was stunned and delighted that you enjoyed my letter. I wonder which one first, Ray. Did you did you sit there and, like, and like your eyes turned into crosses and birds?" Or were you delighted first and then stunned? You enjoyed my letter so much and that it generated so much material for you. So here are the, some of the details. No, it's on a brown piece of paper. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I pulled it out. Uh, Jimmy Stewart. This is how he met Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart was playing the lead in Harvey along with Helen Hayes. Um, the sentence construction leads me to believe that Helen Hayes and Jimmy Stewart were playing the lead role in Harvey together. <laughs> but I know what you're saying because I hate Oxford commas. Jimmy Stewart was playing the lead in Harvey, comma along with Helen Hayes. Um, we had a mutual friend and the fact that I played that part at the University of Texas and shared his name inspired me to send a note backstage before the performance. Later, I was invited to his dressing room. So he got to go back and meet James Stewart. He apologized for what he felt was an inferior performance. And, and then uh, Mr. Ray Stewart has written in parentheses here, just say thank you. Uh, and I, it's the lesson I learned long ago. Um, in the business we call show, when someone comes up to you and goes, I really liked your set tonight or good show, you don't go, you should have been at the nine o'clock one. That was a lot better. Or you should have been here Tuesday. I had this great routine that really worked. 
I, I, I always just say thank you. That's terribly kind. Uh, no matter what anyone says, unless they say it was a bad show, in which case you should. Oh, thank you. Was it on the desk? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, Jennifer has access to the porpoise. Uh, so that's how he met Jimmy Stewart. That would be weird, though, to have Jimmy Stewart apologize to you, especially for playing Elmo Dobbs, which is one of his greatest roles. Well, I, I, I wasn't very good tonight. Um, how would we know? You've done it the same for a thousand years. It's really cool that he played it uh, live, though. Yeah. Uh, and Helen Hayes, fantastic. The first lady of the theater. Uh, uh, she's quite short. Um, I, I'm trying to think of... There was a TV show when we were little called The Snoop Sisters, was it? When I was little, you weren't little, you were not even born. And I want to say it was Helen Hayes and Mildred Natwick. And they played two uh, older lady detectives who were kind of, you know, quirky and eccentric. I want to say it was part of the NBC rotating mystery series when they used to have everybody had a TV show in the 70s. Dennis Weaver had a TV show and uh, Richard Boone was a, a old West detective named Heck Ramsey. Oh, yeah. James McEachin was an urban detective named Tanafly. Uh, Rock Hudson uh, was in San Francisco with Susan St. James, and he had a, a porn stash during that era and wore leather jackets, and his show was called Macmillan and Wife. And she'd go, Mac! And he'd be all cute. Uh, yeah, there was, and Peter Falk was Columbo for ages. I want to say they were part of this, but the Snoop sisters, I think, were part of that grand a bunch of detective shows. Oh, uh, um, George Papard uh, had a one where he was Polish and he smoked cigars and he was kind of a kind of a dick and he wore a, a turtlenecks and his name was Banachek. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was before A Team. It was really good. That was a good one. We watched one the other day, didn't we? We watched part of one and uh, the you know seventies cop shows. That's why. Uh, um, Oh, cock, I'm blanking on his name. Sean, uh, uh, you know, Hot Fuzz. And um, uh, uh, he made the the Alien movie. He made the Hot Fuzz cop movie. He made the Shaun of the Dead. Uh, British comedian. He's 40 years old. Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg and his partner. Uh, that's why they did Hot Fuzz, because those shows are so much fun. All those 70s cop shows are. I mean, we had Kojak. When, you know, he sucked on a lollipop. His brother, Stavros, was on the show. And he really would say every week, who loves you, baby? And he wore a little Swiss hat. It was really good. I was partial to Hawaii Five-O because there was no acting allowed on that show. It took place in Hawaii. And like the Mad Magazine version was maybe the best version of any TV show they ever did. Because in the Mad Magazine version, he goes like, hey, let's have some pineapple juice and donuts. And he goes, what do you mean? He says, we're trying to work Hawaii into the script or whatever. Like, And so... Steve Baguera was played by Jack Lord, and Jack Lord was an actor. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Doctor No, he's the original Felix in the very first uh, uh, James Bond movie. And he was tall and good looking, and he had bitchin' rockabilly hair, like he had this insane hairdo. And then he didn't ever want to deal with Hollywood, and I love him for this. He moved to Hawaii and made CBS shoot the show in Hawaii, and I don't think he ever came back to Hollywood. They'd fly actors over, and they'd do a week on the show, and they always played bad guys on the show or whatever. There was lots of pockmarky actors on Hawaii Five-0. And then he's the only producer I can think of who cast Asian Americans all through the 70s because um, uh, Zulu, who played uh, Kono, or Kono, who played... Zulu played Kono, and um, what's-his-name played uh, Chin-Ho Kelly, uh, the other uh, Asian cop on the show. And then later, Ray, uh, what's-his-name, who was the surfer dude, was one of the cops on the show. And uh, they had loads of Asians on the show, and, and they depicted 
Hawaiians. They actually had Hawaiian actors, which was kind of cool then. And it had a great theme song uh, that had a hula girl in the beginning and uh, a giant jumbo jet. And he would wear these blue suits like he was in the FBI in the 40s. And they drove around in these giant Ford town cars. So there was no sense of Hawaii. Like they never wore Aloha shirts. Or only the other bad guys wore Aloha shirts. And that fabulous actor who plays the mind control specialist who uh, indoctrinates everyone in the Manchurian candidate. I can't think of his name. Um, he was an Asian actor and he always played bad guys and he had a little pencil thin mustache and he had a big round head. Will you look up woe fat on Hawaii Five-0? And he played a, a, an arch enemy of McGarrett's on Hawaii Five-0 named woe fat. And there's one where he captures McGarrett and puts him to punish him, to torture him in an isolation tank. So he puts like earphones on him and eye plugs or whatever and hangs him in a pool, which drives McGarrett mad because evidently white men in their 40s can't be alone with their thoughts. And he would talk like this. Well, Mr. McGarrett, uh, if you ever seen The Manchurian Candidate, which is a, a directed by um, Frankenheimer, I want to say it's Frankenheimer, but I'm probably wrong. Uh, Sinatra's in it and uh, Henry DeSilva, who we brought up, plays the houseboy in it. Um, Janet Lee and Lawrence Harvey and the, the fabulous um, John MacGyver plays the senator in it and Angela Lansbury in one of her greatest roles. She's still alive. Dig her. What's his name? Pronounce that. Key Day, I think his name was. K-H-I-G-H-D-H-I-E-G-H. Key Day was born in Spring Lake, New Jersey. <laughs> he was an actor known for the Manchurian Candidate Judge D and the Monastery Masters and Seconds. That's right. He's in Seconds. He died in 1991 in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, he was well fat on Hawaii Five-0. You'd never forget him if you see him. And he didn't speak in a pigeon. You know, he, he didn't do the uh, Mr. Miguel, we go get you. He, he spoke like this, like with an erudite, educated uh, Ah, Mr. McGarrett, so we find... All right, whoa, fat. What is it this time? Whoa, fat. Can you believe that? Uh, mm, 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 mm. And th then toward the end of Hawaii Five-0 in the late 70s, Yvonne Elliman had a song, and it was a giant hit, and it was on the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. His look was, his look was remarkable. Uh, and it went... Um, if I can't have you, I don't want nobody, baby. I believe, you can look this up, Yvonne Elliman was from Hawaii. So there's an episode of Hawaii Five-0 where they worked her in to the, to the plot of the show. And to give you an idea of the kind of police work they would do on Hawaii Five-0, one of my favorite episodes was like an ancient Hawaiian king's shawl was stolen from the Hawaiian Museum of History. You know, King Palakalaka or whatever. And... It was a bunch of stoned kids who were often the bad guys on 70s TV shows. Stoned kids were a danger to America. So they're like, hey, man, let's go to the Hawaiian Museum and steal King of Waka Waka's shawl. And I remember they, the second scene after they steal it, McGarrett comes, is called in. Now, they're called 5-0 because they're state police, right? And then awesomely, because I was watching it the other day, New Jack City, uh, if you remember in that fine, fine motion picture that stars... Um, uh, not Jonathan Silverman, but uh, Judd. Uh, what's his name? He's in a, a Breakfast Club. Nelson. Judd Nelson, uh, who says to Ice T, "It's not a." Ice T plays one of his first cop roles in that. 
It's not a black thing. It's a white thing. It's a drug thing. Uh, it's not a black thing. It's not a white thing. It's a drug thing. And so true. Uh, Wesley Snipes says Nino Brown. That was brilliantly uh, helmed by Mar- uh, Mario Van Peebles, uh, whose acting is just great in it. But in any case, uh, in that movie, where were we leading with this? Yvonne Elliman. Yvonne, I'm getting back to Yvonne Elliman. <laughs> Don't stop me when I'm on a new Jack swing. It has good music. I like the new Jack period. And if you like turquoise and powder blue suits and people wearing jaunty hats, Chris Rock plays a rock addict in it. It's fantastic. Uh, Yvonne Elliman's worked into the Hawaii Five-0 episode. Was she from Hawaii? Oh, she's from Honolulu. So in the episode where the kids steal the shawl, they walk in to the museum on the second scene. What I was getting at in New Jack City is, if you remember in the movie, they call all police 5-0 in the movie. They're like, you 5-0. He's 5-0, which I thought was awesome that somehow Hawaii 5-0 had permeated into the Bedford Stuyvesant, how do you say it? Stuyvesant neighborhood of New York where they were smoking rock. Uh Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. So they walk into the Hawaiian Museum after the shawl's been stolen, and McGarrett goes, so they go, well, we don't know what it could be, uh, Steve, whether it's an art thief or someone who's interested in antiquities. And without pause, he goes, what if it was a group of stone teenagers? (laughs) Like, talk about Sherlock Holmes. He hadn't even looked at the evidence, man. Like, he just, boom, solved the crime. So then the next 40 minutes, you know, it's different than the Yvonne Element episode. I don't remember what happened in the Yvonne Element episode. I do remember this. At the end of the show, somehow they save her. Something happened to her. I don't know. They were threatening her or something. Or someone was, I don't know what they were doing, blackmailing her. In any case, Dano and him go to the disco concert at the end. And they let Yvonne Element get up and sing, If I Can't Have You. And they both wore Aloha shirts in that episode. Like little blue ones and shit. And so McGarrett's got this awesome sort of James Deanian, you know, haircut and is the uncoolest cop that was ever on TV. Like there's never been a cop uncooler than Steve McGarrett was on Hawaii Five M. And uh, they groove to Yvonne Elliman at the end. Whoa. Good record. Without you, but um bum bum and I can't and what's it? Something, something, how I cried. Yeah, there's a lot of sadness. Which reminds me of something. Years ago, I was hosting this uh, um, dating show, the year that everyone had a dating show. Aisha had one called Dating in a Car. Chris Hardwick had one called, as Tony Kameen so brilliantly put it, Boat Date. It was called Shipmates. Mine was called, what the fuck was my dating show called? Rendezvous. Rendezvous. Okay, get it? We changed the second part of the word rendezvous. And, uh, uh, <laughs> you made me laugh. <coughs> Gloria Gaynor came on as one of the, we had two celebrity guests, and, and then me and this woman who was a, a dating expert, which she wasn't, because she really hadn't had that many successful relationships, and I've been married for a thousand years, so I thought I was kind of more of an expert on relationships. <laughs> I mean, isn't the point of dating to be in a relationship? Whatever. In any case, we had many great, great guests on the show. Uh, My two favorite episodes, uh, Jane Weedlin and uh, um, uh, Dave Wakeling from the English Beat. And uh, 
Yeah, that was Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's and Dave Wakeling. It was really good. What you might call a new wave episode. And Dave uh, drank a lot of beer in the dressing room. And we were supposed to show videos and then they were supposed to discuss it. And so it'd be like, well, what did you think of that, Dave? But Dave was kind of drunk. So he just talked through the whole show. And I couldn't really get him to stop talking. And it was great. And then they played Save It for Later uh, on one of the commercial breaks. And it was awesome. And I said to Jane, what do you think of the couple? And Jane said, that girl looks like she needs a spanking. And I thought, that's one of the best things anyone's ever said on a dating show. So apparently, she, she needed the beat. Uh, in any case, um, my other favorite episode of that show was Montel Jordan. Because in the middle of the show during a commercial, they played the vocal track. I mean, they played the backing track and Montel Jordan got up and sang, this is how we do it. And it was great. And he's really good looking. And he was wearing, bless you, he was wearing a tank top and a little rock chain. And he got up and he was like, what up, Ted, on the west side? <laughs> Throw the keys to my truck. You never turn your back on an old school truck. This is how we do it. It was fucking great. Speaking of New Jack. I believe one of Motown's last great uh, hits on that label. Or do they, are they still a label? Montel Jordan had a hit with that. I love that he had a truck. And I believe he mentions uh, that there's a designated driver in their posse. Uh, but, you know, in light of what's been happening, think about it. It seems uncool if you're a gangster, but I don't think he was a gangster. I think he was just never going to turn his back on an old school track was the point. Uh, he was great. But my favorite one, and this is leading back to the Yvonne Elliman story, was Gloria Gaynor. Now, Gloria Gaynor uh, sang I Will Survive, which, as our very good friend, uh, uh, now I'm blanking on his name, uh, said was, uh, uh, no, he said uh, um, Chumbawamba's I Get Knocked Down is the straight man's I Will Survive, right? <laughs> because... Uh, I Will Survive is kind of the gay national anthem. I hope I'm not being too dismissive of, of gays. But uh, I think a lot of gay men of a certain caliber would agree with me that I Will Survive was a, a standard. Uh, so now you're back from outer space with that sad look upon your face. I should have changed that fucking lock. Um, and, uh, but no, uh, what does she say? But no, not me. I Will Survive as long as I know how to love uh, I know that I'll, whatever, I don't know all the works. I've got all my life to live, and I've got all my love to give, and I will survive. In any case, it really is the gay national anthem. And Gloria Gaynor knew that, obviously. Uh, it had been, you know, a long time in the career. She'd been around a while. And she knew that she had to sing this song no matter what, because it was gay men worship Gloria Gaynor for singing this song. So we're recording our little dating show. We got Gloria Gaynor in, and Gloria Gaynor is a very nice Christian lady who was wearing a little gold cross and wasn't having a lot of truck with the promiscuity on the dating show because the dating show was all about getting drunk and hooking up, bitches! So we got to the commercial break and they played I Will Survive, uh, which we often, whoever, if we had singers on, we always played their hits. And uh, she, they played I Will Survive and she didn't sing it a gay guy got up out of the audience and did an interpretive dance that I think he'd been waiting to do his entire life. And it was done with unbelievable fervency and elan. Uh, it was like, I can't describe to you how f uh, enthusiastic this dance to I Will Survive. Because, you know, first, because first I was afraid. I was petrified. There's this big, you know, kind of opening you know, thing in the beginning, the entree, and then it, you know, kicks into the disco beat, and then, oh, now you're back, I'm from out of space, and that, he did twirls, he did flips, at one point he was on the floor, the shirt was open, and the place went 
bat fuck. <laughs> the entire studio audience went. It was better than the show, right? Like the dating show had nothing on the entertainment we were presenting during the commercial breaks. It was so awesome. And Gloria Gaynor kissed him and gave him an autograph. And it was, I can't say enough about her. The other two people that I will mention that were on that show, since we're on the tack now, are, uh, uh, why not tell some celebrity stories since we're telling, I didn't meet James Stewart, but God damn it, I met Montel Jordan and he was really handsome. Um, Jerry Springer was on the show and he was hilarious. But, um, and downtown Julie Brown. But uh, uh, um, the other two that I remember distinctly were Eddie Money and, uh, oh yeah, Eddie fucking Money. Now, you, if you're a certain age, you don't know who I'm talking about. If you listen to classic rock, you know who I'm talking about. Maybe this will hip you to who Eddie, Eddie Money is. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Uh, I've got two tickets to paradise. Won't you? Pack your bags, we leave tonight. Remember when white guys were given careers for no reason because they had mullets? That's what Eddie Money was. It's sort of an early 80s, I'm guessing. Is that one? No, late 70s. Late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and then he did one with Ronnie Spector called um, Be My Little... Uh, what was the name of it? Take me home tonight. I don't want to let you go till the morning light. And then Ronnie Spector would come in and go, Be My Little Baby, right? Because that's which song she sang. <coughs> and by the way, thank you for those of you who sat through the last bar Lubitsch one where I coughed up a sea otter halfway through the show. In any case, Eddie Money uh, did so much coke that he crossed his legs once at a party and one of his legs went numb and then he was kind of paralyzed for a while. Had to have a cane. His real name was Eddie Mahoney and he they gave him the name Eddie Money. I think Bill Graham managed him and he did a lot of blow, and he kind of had this kind of dude. It was in the d- days. How do I describe what he? He had kind of a mullet, and then like a sport coat and a scarf. Sometimes this is the late seventies, early eighties. Two scarves. No sex appeal at all, unless you think cops are sexy, because everyone in his family was a policeman or fireman. I think he was from New York, and everyone in the family was named Mahoney, and they were all firemen. Anyway, he came on the show on. Uh, Ronnie View. This is some time ago. This is a dozen or more years ago. I'm, I'm lowballing it. In any case, he had an open shirt that was open to his waist. And there's only one way to describe his chest. Furry breasts. Fulsome, rich male furry breasts. He also had this kind of weird uh, pentangle, sort of, you know, shark toothy, you know, in a pendant. And the open shirt. He still had the same haircut from the late 70s, early 80s. Kind of a, a modified uh, groove mullet. You know, the, you know, the rock star. Uh, now I'm 50, but I still have the mullet. And uh, what I loved most about Eddie Money was, uh, first of all, they played Two Tickets to Paradise. They played his songs and everybody was... Uh, the crowd was largely black at the show. They were a paid studio audience. We recorded at Paramount. So when we would have people on like Eddie Money, they were baffled beyond all. We would, if we had anyone on in those days, it was called the WB. If we had anyone on from sisters or something like that, they were like, wow, this is awesome. When we'd have people on from Jag and stuff like that, they'd be like, who's this? Cause, and I would go, I would turn to the crowd and go, it's a white folk show. And the whole crowd would cry laughing. We would have people on from Jag and Sabrina. I'm not kidding. It was fun. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. That was a good show. Caroline and whatnot. Uh, um, in any case, 
uh, Eddie Money, the crowd is a little perplexed. They didn't quite, like when Montel was on, it was, yeah. And Gloria Gaynor, it, live, live. When uh, Eddie Money, they were kind of like, what's he doing? And he did this. I can't, if I can describe it to our podcast audience. Through his whole performance on the Rendezvous show, like, Eddie, what did you think of that date? Man, and he talked in rock. He talked in Rockies, man. That day was crazy. And he threw with his hands crosses and uh, little symbols and, and peace signs and, and devil horns and every manner of sometimes crosses, though, simply like he was warding off a vampire, like, all right, like that. And he would just turn to the crowd and stick his tongue out and go, all right, and like make a cross at them and, and then throw devil horns and shit like that. And he told me a joke backstage. We're in the green room. And, uh, he goes, uh, and he had just been on Drew Carey's show, I think, the week before. Like, Drew always had all the 70s rock stars on, which was very fun. Uh, and he goes, uh, hey, Greg! Because that's how he talked. I said, yes, Eddie. He said, uh, we had to put the dog down last night. He goes, let me tell you a joke, man. I go, all right, Eddie, I'll hear a joke. He goes, uh, you like jokes? I'm like, yeah, I, I adore jokes. I'm a, I'll find I'm a comedian. Uh, do you like classic rock? Because I'll sing for you if you wish. I'll sing some Seals and Crofts that'll rock your ass. I'll play for you. Seals and Crofts. I don't even know how to explain that to you guys. Uh, anyway, he goes, you like jokes? I go, yes, Eddie. He goes, I got a joke for you. I'm like, dig. He goes, um, I go, let me have it. So We had to put the dog down last night. I said, why did you have to put the dog down last night? And he went, because he was on the couch. And he slapped my face, like gangster style. Bam, like that. Like, <laughs> you know how you slap a guy like, hey, you know, like, isn't that funny? And I was like, ah, ah. And then, oh, you're not, oh, you, that was the punchline. You had to put the dog down because he got on the couch. And then you slapped me like a New York police officer. So that was pretty weird. And then uh, he'd married a Playboy Playmate. And he showed me her picture. And he kind of made a lascivious face when he did it, which I, I'm like, are you married? And he's like, yeah, I'm married to play me. And he showed me a picture. And she's, you know, nice looking lady. And he went like, nah. and I was like, oh, God, does she deserve a Congressional Medal of Honor? I don't know what civilian awards can be given out for having to accept him inside you, but she really deserved a big one. In any case, uh, he, uh, I said, where are you guys going, man? Because they were on tour. And I was kind of like, at that point, a little over it. Like, oh, Eddie, you know, you slapped me. You weren't that, you know, whatever. You're throwing devil horns at my crowd of, of black people who are looking at you like, what do you, why are you devil horning us? And I go, where are you going, man? And he goes, we're getting in the bus and we're going to Phoenix tonight. And I was like, you know what? I feel bad. I feel sad now. I, I actually feel a little sympathy for you. I felt better at the end. Like, you know what? You're getting in a bus, you're driving to Phoenix. Dude, you're working. I get it. If it means throwing devil horns and having giant male breasts and wearing a shark's tooth. Because you do, you know what? In the song you said you had two tickets to paradise, but you don't. You had a bus trip to Phoenix. <laughs> I'm going to take you on a trip so far from here. I've got two tickets in my bag and my baby. We're going to disappear. And this is the best part. For a while. Yeah, interjections. Waited so long. Yeah. Uh, that was a goodie. 
Well, more more rendezvous stories on another episode. Uh, here's the other part of a race to the second's letter. I was playing one of the fathers in the fantastic. Oh, well, to, to go back. So the McGarrett wore an Aloha shirt at the end of the Yvonne Element episode. And no, I never saw Yvonne Element live. And I never saw Gloria Gaynor live. But I did see a gay guy do an insanely good dance to I Will Survive. We saw the Scissor Sisters years ago when they were America's favorite gay group. Uh, my wife and I went down to the wheelchair, and as I've said many times, I'm not gay. I make no case for it. I saw the Scissor Sisters live, and they weren't. They did their song. What was it? Uh, Take your mama out tonight and gently fuck her from behind, or whatever their fucking song was. <laughs> they also did a disco version of Comfortably Numb. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of gay guys in the group. They brought out someone with a hoop at one point who did like a hoop act. Uh, you know, like I've got a halo hoop, and then whatever. Um, I don't think it's the guy from Lucha Boom who I love. He's so nice. Um, but uh, they didn't have a lot of stage powder. And that was the thing. Elton John was real hot on them at the time. And he was like, they're the greatest group ever. They do Comfortably Numb in a disco style. But the girl who was the lead singer of the Sister Sisters, along with the guy, uh, this was her stage powder. All right, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we're so glad to be here, ladies and gentlemen. You know what we're going to do tonight, ladies and gentlemen? And th- I'm quoting her. I have never forgotten this. I'm not getting it wrong, and I'm not approximating. We're going to fuck you in your motherfucking ear holes. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. And I was like, first of all, stop saying ladies and gentlemen. Secondly, never fuck me in my motherfucking ear holes. Those are reserved. Only a certain honeybee gets to go in that motherfucking ear hole and fuck me. So don't you ever do that again. And if you're young and you're listening and you're blanket for it, I'm sorry about all the profanity in this episode. Uh, in any case, they weren't gay enough. That was my complaint. I went to see the Scissor Sisters and my wife and I were like, we're from San Francisco. This ain't gay enough. If you ever saw the Sisters of Light or the Cockettes or even the Tubes, for fuck's sake, there's plenty of gay acts that are gayer than... Uh, you know, I mean, we met Tom Robinson in England when he wasn't gay. If anybody remembers Tom Robinson, Tom Robinson did a song called Glad to be Gay in the 70s and then later wasn't gay. And it was like, but you sang I'm glad to be gay. Are you allowed to stop being gay? Didn't you sing the anthem of gay people? And he also did 2468 Motorway, which if any of you remember, that was kind of a punk era new wavy song by him that was quite good about doing coke and driving on your motorcycle. Uh, what was it? Something about Little White Lines. And somehow the BBC never caught the part that he said Little White Lines for the whole song. But it, it was a marchy uh, kind of football-y chant song. And that's why it was so popular in England. And it went, uh, two, four, six, eight, no two way. <laughs> Me and my radio trucking on through the night. Trucking. Very important, as I said in the 70s. We had to truck a lot. Six, was it, three, five, seven, nine, little white lines. Motorway sun coming up in the morning light. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're glad to be gay. And I remember I was like a college DJ at that point. Duh. And really, Greg, what a surprise. And uh, we would play Glad to be Gay. And, I, and he did one called Power in the Darkness that was about an anti-fascist song. And um, thinking, well, now we're just going to have openly gay stars. But it's taken quite a goddamn while to get Bruno Mars onto the fucking Super Bowl, hasn't it? Uh, people are still afraid of that shit. Whatever. Um, but when we met Tom Robinson, he was so nice, and he always sang 2468 Motorway. And he would introduce it as, and now I would like to do my greatest hit. <laughs> <laughs> he also sang, what was it? Didn't he sing Go Straight to Hell when we saw him one time? He sang The Clash song, which takes me to another story uh, about seeing The Clash. 
because Ray Stewart was like, he listed all these people that he saw, like Xavier Cugat and, and Jimmy Stewart and whatnot. But I did see The Clash a couple of times later in their career when they were a little more coked up and they were a little less energetic. And the English beat was opening for him. But I saw them in 1978 or maybe January 78, a little maybe later. And that was at the People's uh, uh, Temple Beautiful, which was a synagogue on Geary Street in San Francisco. My cousin Donnie, I think, and I went, maybe my friend Danny. And uh, it was next door to the People's Temple. It was right maybe three months after the horrible uh, incident in Guyana. And uh, the People's Temple was still there. And the sign out in front said Reverend Jim Jones Pastor, still uh, up. So there was a lot of morbid joking in line as we stood uh, there. And the Temple Beautiful was an old synagogue that they'd started to use as a punk venue. And the balconies sagged, visibly sagged. While you were standing in them, you were like, like you were going to fall off. And the names of all the Jews were on the walls who'd been the donors. So it was the most unlikely fucking punk venue. They sold beer out of a crate in the back. And they had some crappy local bands open for The Clash. And The Clash came out, and they had done Berkeley Community Theater the night before with Bo Diddley. And Bo Diddley got booed. Uh, the Clash, when they first came to America, they loved Roots music. And they would take Ray, uh, Joe Ely, was it? And uh, Bo Diddley. They would find old Roots stars and have them open for them. But the punk crowds weren't having it in those days. They weren't that kind to them. How, would you, how can you boo Bo Diddley in good conscience? Um, in any case... That was the night before. This was a night, unannounced concert at midnight or whatever. So we went and we were real high and we went to the balcony. And I remember thinking, shit, this shit's going to collapse on me. Uh, the Clash came out, no introduction. And we're the most frenzied, furious fucking rock and roll show I've ever seen in my life. Joe's eyes rolling up into his head. He had no stick. All he did was kick the microphone stand like this over and over again. And his eyes rolled up into his head. And Mick Jones was all over the fucking yard like Pete Townsend. It was amazing. So when I saw them again, like a year or two later, I guess it was about combat rock time or whatever. They weren't quite as enthusiastic as they were the first time. And then they put on a band after the clash. That was the thing about punk shows. There would be too many bands. And so it was like Alan Freed's rock and roll show or whatever. Now we've had The Clash, and I think it was mm, the first two albums. That's it. That's all they had. They, didn't have the, they hadn't done London Calling. And uh, so they did the first two records, and they did Safe European Home and all these big, and screaming, jumping, screaming, everybody smoking, fucking throwing joints, blah, 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 blah. Crappy lighting, fucking shitty sound. Awesome. Then, and now, you know, because all punk bands in those days were, you know, in San Francisco, everybody was named like Septic. You know, or whatever. Everybody had a name like that. You had to have razor blade or some sort of decaying shit in your name to prove you were down by law. And I remember this poor band came out after the clash and had to play. And, of course, people were like, fuck you, and just throwing <laughs> shit. And I remember after the first number, the singer went, thanks, you really knock us out. Why we stayed. I don't think we stayed for the whole set. Uh, in any case, he says here, I was playing one of the fathers in the Fantastics in New York. This is Ray Stewart II. Brackets, my first paying acting gig. That's so awesome. The Fantastics is a, a musical. Is it a musical? Yes. Johnny Cash was being considered to play El Gallo in the movie version. Wow, that's a mind bender. Well, I'd like to... <laughs> For those of you in prison here... That's, I wish I'd seen Johnny Cash. I, I believe I've expressed my regret in that regard. So he came to see it, and he came backstage dressed all in black. The movie was made years later and was dreadful. That show changed my life. My first audition after the Neighborhood Playhouse was for the original production in 1960. I didn't get it, but I auditioned every year for eight years and finally made it, and I never waited tables again. Awesome. 
so he met Johnny Cash. That's I love that they wanted Johnny Cash to be in the Fantastics. I understand Carl Perkins read for under the yum yum tree, but it didn't work out. That show led to me being cast in William Gibson's A Cry of Prayers with Anne Bancroft and Frank Langella. Fucking A. At the Vivian Beaumont uh, in Lincoln Center. Now, Frank Langella, uh, for you youngsters, uh, was Nixon in the Ron Howard Nixon movie. Uh, what was that called? Frost Nixon from a few years back. And he was tremendous as Nixon. Although he was, I think, a full foot taller than Richard Nixon was. Uh, he did quite a great... I like his Nixon better than Anthony Hopkins' Nixon and Oliver Stone's Nixon, or better than Dan Hadaya's Nixon in the other movie that has Nixon in it. But uh, Anne Bancroft was uh, an actress of some power who won an Oscar for a picture called The Miracle Worker from the early 60s where she um, uh, teaches Helen Keller how to sign in the movie. Um, and Anne Bancroft's in loads and loads of movies, most notably um, as Mrs. Robinson in the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. And she puts her leg up on the table and lights a cigarette, and Dustin Hoffman goes, Mrs. Robinson, you're opening up your whole life to me. Uh, so that's a esteemed actors to play with. Uh, I replaced Graham Jarvis as the narrator in the Rocky Horror Show at the Roxy. That's fantastic. The narrator, I know y'all know what the Rocky Horror Show is. I'd like, if I may, you may not, <laughs> to take you on a strange journey. True, there were storm clouds. Describe your balls. Large, black, and pendulous. Um, that's the narrator. Uh, as played by the immortal Charles Gray in the movie uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Charles Gray, you will remember, is Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. He's, uh, I might be getting that wrong. He's also um, brilliantly... Mycroft Holmes in the Jeremy Brett uh, um, version uh, from the uh, 90s of of the Sherlock Holmes. I believe, I'm almost certain it's Charles Gray. Well, Charles Gray told him this, and that's why he was in every movie. He always spoke like this. I'd like to, if I may. It's just a jump to the left, and then a step to the right. Uh, he was brilliant. Gore Vidal was waiting downstairs for Paul Jabara, who had replaced Tim Curry. We had a nice conversation. Will you look up Paul Jabara and see if you can get a picture on this person? J-A-B-A-R-A, -A -A, who had replaced Tim Curry. We had a nice conversation, even though I was awestruck. Uh, why was Gore Vidal waiting for Paul Jabara, who was playing a drag role where he sleeps with everyone in the play? What happened after they left is anybody's guess. <laughs> Do we get a Paul Jabara? Let's see. Is there one in the Rocky makeup? Oh my goodness. Look at that headshot. Remember the headshot where you look at the crowd like, yeah, there's something waiting for you below the equator. That's what Paul Jabara's headshot is like. That was my first job in LA after moving west from New York. My TV career blossomed until I played a gay character, Daryl Driscoll on Barney Miller in 1976. It was just too early. I ended up doing seven episodes, and after that, I was only called to play interior decorators, jewelers, and florists. Before that, I had played surgeons, senators, and a hired assassin. That'll give you an idea of what casting agents are like. Once you play a gay guy on a show, that's it. You're a gay guy forever and ever. We saw Max von Sydow last year at the Turner Classic Movies Festival, and Max von Sydow played Jesus in a movie we've talked about far too much on the show called The Greatest Story Ever Told. He's the Swedish, the tall, blonde Swedish Jesus in that one. And he said to Leonard Malton, who was interviewing him, uh, after that, they only wanted me to play uh, priests, bishops, and Jesus. And he was like, and he said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, 
because casting directors in Hollywood have no imagination. So I, because Leonard Maltin goes, well, you played Jesus. What was it like after that? And he's like, all they wanted me to do was play Cardinals. <laughs> Max Vincito, you may remember him from the movie Flash Gordon, where he plays Ming the Merciless. But he's an, um, one of the most superb actors of all time. Uh, so I went back to the stage, Long Beach Civic Light Opera, Anything Goes with Helen Reddy. Fantastic. I don't know if anyone remembers Helen Reddy, but she did the great feminist song from the early 70s called I Am Woman. And it went, I am woman, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore. Um, and Helen Reddy had a, a summer replacement show, and she also hosted Midnight Special sometime. So in my favorite Ohio Players clip that's available on YouTube, Helen Reddy's introducing the Ohio Players. She was from Australia, and she was, how do I put this, anodyne? Vaguely sexless? She sang in kind of that Olivia Newton-John you know, like there was, we had an Australian wave at that point of the Bee Gees, uh, Helen Reddy, Olivia Newton John. She had kind of a lesbian tennis player mullet. And um, what was her big song? Well, I Am Woman was cataclysmic, and that made her a huge superstar. And then um, she would be on like the Carol Burnett show, and she would do like stuff with, you know, you'd always see her on telly because she was kind of personable, kind of jumpsuity. There was a lot of bell bottoms and jumpsuits with Helen Reddy. Uh, you and me against she said the whole Paul Williams Canaan was Helen Reddy's bailiwick uh, sometimes it feels like you and me against the world except Paul Williams saying it better remember when the circus came the circus came to town and you were fat and blood a clown Paul Williams still alive still awesome Paul Williams you'll remember from the movie Phantom of the uh, uh, Phantom of the Paradise uh, a superb turn as him from him as Swan, the evil record producer slash Phantom. Uh, and then he, a guy haunts the Phantom, the Paradise, and um, Paul Williams uses him to his own evil ends. If you want true horror, it's not what I would call a horror movie. However, it has kind of a gay rock star named Beef in it, which is fairly good. And then Jessica Harper sings and dances. Think about that for a minute before you go to sleep. Jessica Harper sings and dances in the movie. Um, and Paul Williams also plays one of the orangutans in the fifth Planet of the Apes movie, which I believe is called Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Matt Weinhold can do it better than I can, and so can Dana Gould. Time is a many-layered highway. But Paul Williams was really funny, and he was often on TV in the 70s, and he was about four foot nine, four foot ten maybe, really short. Bell bottoms, platform shoes, tinted shades, kind of a weird page boy haircut dead great sense of humor but when he sang and he wrote uh, the Carpenter song We've Only Just Begun he wrote Evergreen with Barbara Streisand he wrote a million songs when he sang like Helen Reddy would go or the Carpenters would go like you know uh, Karen Carpenter had that kind of you know baritone the, the, the genius of the Carpenters was you could sing in their key no matter who you were because they were never stretching the key it was always um uh, what was it? Um, we've only just begun. Like anyone can get in on this case. But when Paul Williams would come on TV and sing it, he'd go, We've only just begun to live wildness on time. A kiss would look and we're all active. For this we just begun. Sharing the rise and sun is us. 
Watching the signs along the way. Yeah, there he is. Working over just the two of us. Yeah, his haircut's indescribable. <laughs> Working together, do to do, 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 And when the evening comes, we smile. So much of life ahead. We start out walking and learn to I don't know why he did that. He always did that. He didn't sing. He didn't sing Sullivan S's or anything. Yeah, there he is. Well, I can't remember his character's name. And he was one of the orangutans. He was the wise one. Let me put it that way. They didn't have Maurice Evans anymore. Maurice Evans might have been dead by the fifth one. When I was little, uh, me and my friend Thomas March went and saw the entire Planet of the Apes quintelogy. What do you call five movies? Quintet. They showed them one after the next. It took. It was an all day affair. And believe me, when you're 11 or whatever, it's like, this is good. This is good movies. And then awesomely, Paul Williams is in the last one. With, I believe, Claude Akins is the bad ape. That's the ape kill ape one, by the way, in case you need orienting. That's the ape kill ape. Yeah, I don't think James Gregory is in the... James Gregory's in the second or third one, who's also in the movie The Manchurian Candidate. Because you recognize the voice. You go, the, the, the human is weak. Yeah. <laughs> Barney. He was also in Barney Miller, the show that Ray Stewart the second played Daryl Driscoll on. So it all comes back together. <laughs> when the evening comes. He couldn't pronounce S's. Why did he not say his S's? Paul Williams. Love, soft as an easy chair. Ageless and arrogant. One love that is sure but cheap. He really did sing that way. Uh, and he was superb. We met him once at a voice audition and I was thrilled beyond measure. Are you kidding me? Uh, and then he went to the Civic Light Opera and he did Anything Goes with Helen Reddy. We've discussed Helen Reddy. Helen Reddy. She must, she was, she was, she married a record producer named Jeff Wald or something. She had a huge career. Heaven knows what she's doing now. Call Me Madam with Joanne Worley. Oh yeah. Joanne Worley was on Laughing. Joanne Worley's catchphrase on Laughing was she had a, did she have a feather boa? She had like this giant wiglet and a feather boa and she'd go boring like that. That was her fucking catchphrase. It was so good. They would just cut to her no matter what was going on. And Joanne Worley would go boring like that. It was hilarious. Uh, now I live in South Texas in the house my family bought when I was eight years old. This is Ray Stewart. I did the gin game locally. Oh, that's so cute. Under an equity guest card. And I'm working on the Sunshine Boys for May opening. I'll be 82 by then. Living well on my three union pensions. Social security. I'm a happy man. Don't you just love show business? All the best. Yes, I do. I love you, Ray Stewart the second, for sharing all those memories with us. <coughs> and well done. And uh, look for the Sunshine Boys down there in South Texas uh, with Ray Stewart the second. As I say, you can IMDB him. And it's fantastic. What are we clocking in at here? How are we looking? We're almost getting ready to wrap her up. I want to bring up a couple more people that I saw uh, because Ray Stewart saw so many great people in his list, uh, including Ethel Merman and Gypsy and Lenny Bruce of the Village Vanguard. Um, I saw, uh, speaking of comedials, um, um, well, Cheech and Chong I saw at uh, the Circle Star Theater in San Carlos. And if I have talked about the Circle Star before, you'll have to forgive me. Circle, I, I'm from a small white suburb 30 miles south of San Francisco, but every giant star in the universe played this fucking theater. Frank Sinatra, Frank Zappa, everyone named Frank. Um, my cousin Donnie saw Tony Orlando there. 
I saw Pearl Bailey there with Louis Belson, uh, Count Basie with Ella Fitzgerald. I, my wife and I saw Ella Fitzgerald there. Uh, uh, Patty Page and the Mills Brothers I saw there. Patty Page and the Mills Brothers. Uh, the Step Brothers, who were a vaudeville dance act. I saw the Silvers, uh, Shauna Na, Bill Cosby. Uh, I mean, everybody played this bloody place. And uh, fantastically, uh, who were we talking about just then? It was Ethel Merman or who was it? Remind me. Oh, well, Bill Cosby. That's who I was going to say I saw. Um, and uh, uh, it was... Who was the one I was just brought up that I saw there? Uh, Cheech and Chong. Cheech and Chong was what opened for Tower of Power. And yeah, opened. And they came out and they pretended to be in, they did the hitchhiking routine where uh, Cheech is driving and he picks up Chong. Hey man, I need a ride. And they get in the car and he goes, got any weed? And the whole bit was a litany of 70s weed. This is probably late 70s. So these were the weeds then. It wasn't Purple Kush. It wasn't Sherpa. It wasn't uh, any of that Day Glow Lightning, what they got now, you know, Jedi, da-da-da-da, raspberry, thing, thing, thing. In those days, he goes, I got tie stick. I got gold, gold. I got mesh macon. Oh, yeah, buddies, mesh macon. I'm taking you all back to what the kind of weed we smoked in those days. I got lumbo. That was from Colombia. And there was two kinds of, Col- of lumbo. There was red and gold. Um, tie stick was tremendous and uh, then they did the blind blues singer uh, Chong did the blind blues singer I met Tommy Chong maybe five six years ago I was on the Paramount lot and he pulled up in a, in a limo and he got out I have no idea what he was doing there but he built the Paramount lot Cheech and Chong made how many movies seven eight movies none of them lost money not even Nice Dreams not even Corsican Brothers all of their movies made a fortune they made a fortune for that studio and uh, up and Smoke, Up and Smoke 2. Now, I grant you, they're not the paciest movies when you watch them now. <laughs> but you have to remember how important Cheech and Chong were to dope culture in the 70s. They really got it going on. Uh, the Wedding Album, the first album, uh, Big Bamboo, which came with a giant rolling paper in it. And uh, dig this, white people. Um, they're the first great ethnic comedy team that made it huge since vaudeville. In vaudeville, all comedy teams were Jewish or Irish or Irish and Jewish or Italian and this and this. And they would do ethnic material. But in, they hadn't been, they didn't allow ethnic people on TV. Maybe you got Moms Mabley occasionally or a one or two black artists, Slappy White, Till Red Fox of the 70s were when it really came back. Pat Morita got, you know, was like the only Asian comic you got to see. Uh, Cheech and Chong, uh, Cheech is Latin. He's full on Mexican from LA, and and uh, uh, Tommy Chong is uh, half is half Asian from Vancouver, and uh, and a musician was in a band with Rick James when Rick James was dodging the draft. There's nothing better than Cheech and Chong, really. In any case, I went up to him and I said, "Can I shake your hand?" He went, "Yeah, man." And he was wearing a vest with no shirt. This is five years ago. Tommy <laughs> Chong had. Abs of fucking steel. That dude was ripped beyond measure. Cheech, you know, Cheech lives. Cheech looks like he's had a few buns now and again. Tommy Chong was fucking iron, ironclad. And remember, America, we put Tommy Chong in jail. We put Tommy Chong in jail. That's all I have to say about this country. Uh, and so uh, years ago in London, my wife and I went to see... Uh, a play called No Man's Land. And the reason I bring it up is that Patrick Stewart and um, uh, uh, Ian McKellen are doing it currently on Broadway right now in New York. Uh, they were, I don't know if it's still running, but they did do it. And, it, and, and they're, they're America's favorite fun couple because Ian McKellen is openly gay and Patrick Stewart is a kook of the highest caliber. 
And so they've been running around being fun and lovable. And they would be marvelous. Now, to give you an idea what the plot of the play is, the play opens with a, a very nice drawing room of a rich person's house and two drunk guys come stumbling in. One is the rich guy who lives there and the other is a itinerant drunk who hangs out at the pub down at the corner called The Man on the Moon and they get drunk together and it turns out their lives are intertwined and then in the second act some other people show up and da-da-da. Um, Harold Pinter wrote it, so there's quite a lot of pregnant pauses and it's full of portent and... Uh, it turns out they were with the same girl even in college and all this jazz. Um, we saw in London Paul Eddington from a television show called Yes Minister play the drunk, and Harold Pinter was in it. Uh, the, uh, Harold Pinter acted as well as being a playwright, as well as being a screenwriter. He wrote The French Lieutenant's Woman. He wrote The Servant. He wrote The Accident. I think he wrote The Go-Between as well. Um, Harold Pinter, of course, is a writer of some note and some renown who passed away excuse me, of cancer several years ago. His wife is Lady Antonia Fraser, who wrote the book of Marie Antoinette that Sofia Coppola used to base her film on, and she's written many histories. She's a very rich historian lady. Harold Pinner uh, is from the era of Joe Orton, uh, um, the late 50s, early 60s, kind of in the new wave of British playwriting that came out then where there was a lot more violence and a lot more undercurrent of hatred and... um, uh, how do I put it? Dread. Uh, Pinter. Uh, if you were going to do a parody of Pinter, it would be like, good morning. And what's so good about it? Uh, in No Man's Land, I remember. And, and he has a way of making sex so awful in his plays. I think my favorite Pinter plays The Homecoming, which we saw with Ian Holm and Ian Hart uh, in New York City several years ago. Um, but there's a AFI film version from the early 70s where Ian Holm plays the younger guy. We saw him play the dad. And I think Cyril Cusack, I can't remember who plays the the dad in it. And his wife, Vivian Merchant, is is the girl in it. Why don't you take a long, cool drink from my glass of water? What does he say? I punched her in the head. She was falling apart with the pox. How do you know she had the pox? I decided she did. Yeah, Pinner, really. Yeah. Uh, And I took him around the corner, and she said, I need some protection. And I said, no, look here, never mind the protection. Uh, Yeah. Anyways, uh, we saw Harold Pinner, and... I have to say this, and this is no knock on him as an artist, because he was a tremendous playwright and quite noted for his opinions uh, on politics, in particular the war against Iraq and the war against Afghanistan that Tony Blair and George W. Bush prosecuted. He was a vehement opponent of these wars and wrote much poetry uh, in that regard and wrote several plays um, about Holocaust-like incidents uh, because he hated Bush and Blair so much. And to his death, when they gave him the note, was it the Nobel? He gave a speech to the Nobel uh, Committee and said right before he died of cancer and he wasn't looking too well, that they should be tried for war crimes. And I loved him for that because he had the courage of his convictions. Um, Harold Pinter uh, wrote a play called um, Kittens. What was the one we saw in New York with Lindsay Duncan and 
Ashes to Ashes, David Strathern and Lindsay Duncan. And Lindsay Duncan's a superb actress. David Strathern, you'll remember from Good Night and Good Luck, where he played Edward uh, R. Murrow. Um, and, and a dazzling variety of other movies, including the, the Limp Wick Husband in the River Wild. Um, and uh, I believe that play was a play about... Have I, I think I've told this story on the show before. We went to see it, and uh, it, it was about 35 minutes long. I'm not kidding. Maybe 45 minutes. Very short indeed. It's a one act. And it's clear, it's two people drinking in a room, as many Hinder plays are. And it was clear uh, as the play evolved that um, Lindsay Duncan's character had been in a Holocaust, which Holocaust was not specified. The time that the play came out, it could have been a little more about the Balkans Holocaust, uh, uh, the genocide that happened between uh, the Serbs and the Croats. Um, However, it would have served for any uh, Holocaust. And she says at one point, my, he was a very strong man. And uh, what was his job, says David Strathern, and he said to, what was it, to pluck babies, screaming babies from their mother's arms or something. He made, what did he make you do? He used to make me kiss the end of his fist. And at that point, the audience was like on the floor, right, with horror, because Lindsay Duncan was playing it like she'd been absolutely shattered by what had ever happened to her. So it was some pretty deep stuff and a very short At the end of the play, a fellow bounds onto the stage and goes, I'm from the New York Public Library, and this is difficult material, this pinter, and we're here to have a discussion for those of you who'd like to talk about what you thought this play was about. Well, my wife and I stayed, and by the way, there was a disco next door to this theater, and music was bleeding through through the whole Holocaust thing. (laughs) The screaming babies, the trains, the people being, you know, the horror. And half the crowd... To give you an idea of how short people's attention span were, and I think this was a subscription crowd that had bought into this theater but wasn't ready for this fucking pinner play, half the crowd kind of got up and walked around during it, and it wasn't long. I'm telling you, it was 38 minutes long. People were, like, talking and shuffling. They were so uncomfortable with the material, right? Really uncomfortable. This cat bounds up and and, and goes, we're going to talk about the play. I remember an old couple in front of us stayed simply to Hector the Dude. One guy goes, this play didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> like he's from Jersey or something. He'd come in with his wife. What a bunch of gobbledygook. And the guy's like, well, don't you think that it was a comment on how people treat each other? No, I didn't understand a goddamn word of it. I, one, of, one of the great nights in theater that I've ever had. But Harold Pinter's acting, uh, and like I said, I want to knock him as an artist. Stodgy. Let's just put it that way. Stolid. Paul Eddington was live and, and hilarious and brought all the humor out of the subtext of a very kind of morbid subject. Uh, and Harold Pinter was a better playwright than actor. Let's just put it that way. However, I will say this. He was enormous and had a giant head like a pony keg, like a very impressive head and a stentorian voice. He spoke like this. He was really wild. Uh, but Paul Eddington really ruled in that play. But if you have a chance to read or see these plays, the plays I'm talking about are Ashes to Ashes, No Man's Land, and The Homecoming. But of course, he wrote millions of other plays. The Birthday Party of the Caretaker, uh, The Dumb Waiter, which we saw a superb version with Steve Steen and Andy Smart years ago uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, Steve Steen was really tremendous in that. Um, that's just trying to hip you to some culture, all y'all. Uh, let's take a break and talk about where we're going to be 
first of all, if you wish to help me, uh, you know that the podcast is free to download, and so is the Greg Proops Film Club. And thank you for your support of that. We've been uh, we've had a lot of downloads of it, and I really appreciate it. The next one is uh, going to be the thirty first at the Cine Family, and we're showing uh, a tremendous picture by Curtis Hansen called The Wonder Boys uh, from the, a novel by Michael Chabon. Uh, the cat who wrote the screenplay, oh, I'm forgetting. Well, we'll, go, we'll get into it on the night. But the cat who wrote the screenplay is quite a great. He wrote, believe it or not, like a bunch of Harry Potter movies. In any case, uh, Michael Douglas plays a stoner professor in it. And Katie Holmes is in it, if you can believe that one. Robert Downey Jr. plays a gay literary agent. And Tobey Maguire is superb. It's, it's quite a good movie and very funny. Uh, <clears throat> if you want to help us, um, I have a, a comedy special that we shot uh, called Live at Musso and Frank. Musso and Frank's the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. If you go on my website, gregproops.com, click on the giant banner that says Live at Musso and Frank. If you enter the word Proops, P-R-O-O-P-S, you will get 20% off. What, what does that mean, Greg? Well, it's $5, so you'll get it for $4, and it drops on March 26th. How does it work? You can download it onto your phone or any device that you have that downloads things off a, off a bloody computer. Can I buy it in England? Yes. Can I buy it in Australia? Yes. Can I buy it in New Zealand? Can I buy it in Ireland? Yes. Is it coming out now? No. It's coming out on the 26th. Is it a DVD? No. It is a download. Is, is it free? No. It's $4 if you type in proofs. I'm just trying to answer all the questions I get from people. People said, is it a DVD? No, it is not a DVD. It's a download. We're doing this Louis C.K. style, Brohams. We're doing this Maria Bamford style. You go to my website, click on it. You put your name in you, for four dollars. You get it's an hour long. Are there any extras? No, we shot the whole fucker right out that day. There was no retakes. We shot the lights out in an hour. Uh, there might be one or two different camera angles. That's all you get. But it's pretty funny. I like it. I wouldn't tell you to buy it if I didn't like it. I don't try to peddle a bunch of junk. In any case, that's how it works. And you can download it anywhere you live on Earth that you can download. What language is it in? It's in English. Does it have profanity? Yes. Is there drug use explained in the comedy routine? Yes. If you're hesitant about profanity and drug use being explained in graphic terms, then go buy another comics jokes. Go rent Grown Ups 2. You'll enjoy that. I believe we still have some t-shirts. I don't think there's any kittens hoodies. You can buy those on the website as well. Uh, Bar Lubitsch will be there on the 19th. This will, this, won't, this will be out before then. We'll be there next Wednesday, the 19th, a Nerd Melt showroom in Hollywood. The Bar Lubitsch show's free. Nerd Melt, I think, is 10 clams. It's, that's on the 24th of March. That's one of the hipper showrooms in the entire United States. The 31st will be at the Cine Family with the Wonder Boys. Uh, the second will be at Bar Lubitsch again for a free show. The third, I'll be doing a podcast, a stand-up in Phoenix. That just got added. Uh, and I'll be doing stand-up all weekend on the 4th and 5th. But uh, it's a brand new club in Phoenix called Stand Up Live. Uh, come and visit us there for all of our friends in the Valley of the Sun. If you're playing with a Kachina doll, put it down and buy some tickets to that right this instant. Have you ever done a podcast in the Valley of the Sun before? Why do you keep saying the Valley of the Sun? Because if you lived in Phoenix, you'd know that's what they call it. They call it the Valley of the Sun. Uh, and I'll be, it's on Jefferson. It's downtown. It's downtown, downtown Phoenicians. It's not in Scottsdale. I, I did one in Mesa uh, like two years ago. That was the last podcast I did in Arizona. But uh, the, the clubs keep shuffling around there. In any case, this one's downtown. It, it's uh, April 3rd will be uh, 8 o'clock. I think it's 20 clams to come see me do the podcast there. And it'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be warm. 
at the very least. Then I'll be at the San Jose Improv uh, podcast on the 17th of uh, April. The San Jose Improv is a lovely, lovely converted theater that's a beautiful showroom that has uh, tremendous seating and lovely uh, um, bar and everything. Very, very comfortable. There's a dispensary across the street. It's down the block from the Fairmont. It's in kind of a ropey section of downtown in San Jose, so park close and run. Uh, but it's a really fun gig and they're just lovely there. Uh, the 24th to the 26th, this is brand new. We were going to be in Sacramento. Now we're going to be in Halifax at the Halifax Comedy Festival in Nova Scotia. So for all of our friends who live on the eastern seaboard of Canada, uh, in the Nova Scotia area, you know who you are. You're probably a crustacean or you have a friend that's a crustacean. The seafood is to fucking die for. Uh, and no, I won't be bringing back locks. Um, the podcast will be on the 25th. We don't have a venue for it yet. Most likely the Carlton Bar. It's down at the end of that street. It's at the very end. It'll be drizzly. It's, it's right around the corner from that fuck-off seafood bar where I had oysters last time uh, in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And by the way, Halifax, some of your restaurants could stay open past 10. Okay? I'm tired of eating pizza when I get in. So really, you could really have some restaurants open after 10. And uh, the town clock there... I know I've said it before. Don't visit it. You'll die of boredom. You will die of boredom. Uh, however, Halifax is really lovely and right on the sea. I think I said this last time I played there. I went into the seafood place that's behind the crib that we stay at. And I goes in and I says, uh, how's the lobster? And the lady next to me goes, it's not even lobster season here yet. I wouldn't get it. And I'm like, I live in L.A. We don't have lobsters. We have dolphins with bronchial asthma off the shore of Santa Monica. You can see them. Like, <gasps> That's what we have here. We have coyotes that have, you know, like, uh, like sexually transmitted diseases. This is Hollywood. We, 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 we have raccoons with HPV. Okay. So uh, the, the air is so fresh in Nova Scotia. The, do, the lobsters leap into your plate. I had, a, I had lunch and I sent my wife pictures of it last time. I had a, a straight up lobster roll. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was local. And then afterward, an apple crumble from local apples from Nova Scotia. It was to die. And they're bored. Like, ugh, ugh, you got the lobster and the apple crumble. I'm like having a heart attack because the food's so delicious. I feel like I fell into a, a novel from the 1800s. <laughs> and they're bored. Uh, then we'll be uh, in Chicago. And please come to this one at the Up Comedy Club. It's uh, uh, right next to Second City there. And it's a beautifully appointed room. Another room where the drinks and the food are fantastic. Um, I love the Up Comedy Club because the bathroom and the green room, they give you chocolate in the green room. There's carpet and a real mirror. It's like, you know, to be treated like an artist once in a while is not that awful. I mean, the Carlton in Halifax is nice, but it's not like there's a dressing room and shit. You know what I'm saying? You got to go outside and it's raining when you get high. The up, it's, you, you know, there's an enclosed garage area that you can get high in. So it's nice. Uh, and then we'll be at the Bell House in Brooklyn on the 3rd of May. Uh, and the Bell House, uh, if you haven't been to the Bell House, it's in the Gowanus neighborhood, which is the, also the irradiated Dolphin Canal neighborhood. Of Go uh, very up and coming, very emerging. They're going to get a Whole Foods in Gowanus, which is, I don't know if that's the death knell of cool for a neighborhood or uh, the antecedent of uh, good times. Because next thing you know, there's going to be a fight at the quinoa bin. And then goji bears are going to be all over the goddamn place. 
Uh, you don't have to worry about quinoa and goji berries at the Bell House. What the Bell House serves is hard liquor for people who like to get drunk, uh, as they say in the movie uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And there's a hot dog stand inside the venue, a hot dog stand. And sometimes they have barbecue sandwiches, too. So it's really terrific. Um, and I haven't had a hot dog there yet because every time we play there, we have sandwiches or whatever before. But last time we went, uh, there was a car on fire on the Brooklyn Bridge and I had to get out and go look at it in the rain in my, in my show clothes. And my wife was hanging off the end of the vehicle, like waving in the air and everyone backed off the bridge in front of us. It was pretty wild. So hopefully there'll be some sort of hideous conflagration as, as again, as New York is so famous for. Uh, the Bell House in Brooklyn is great fun. Really, really great fun. I, I don't think we've ever had a show that was less than superb there. And, um, uh, and a hot dog stand. I'm having a hot dog this time. I really am. And thank you for all the gifts. Uh, we at the Bell House last time, we got so many lovely gifts. Uh, and then uh, we're working on it. It's not nailed down. We're looking like Paris for the 14th of May. I hate to talk about it yet, but it's pretty close. Uh, and Aaron Dismont-Dis will be in the 10th district at a place called, you're not going to believe this, So Gymnase. That's S O. Another word, G-Y-M-N-A-S-E. It's a comedy club uh, run by a fellow named Antoine there. And uh, we'll probably be there on the 14th of May. The 16th and the 17th of May, we're going to be, pardon me, in Helsinki uh, at uh, the Arctic Comedy Festival, the Arctic Circle Comedy Festival. I believe it's the first annual Arctic Circle Comedy Festival. I'm proud to be there. Um, the 16th will be the podcast at 7 p.m. at On the Rocks. So if you're listening tonight in Finland, I don't know how to speak Finnish. Uh, Finnish? How do you know when you're done? Uh, will be the podcast there at On the Rocks. And then the next night, the 17th, will be, I don't know what venue we're at, but we're doing a comedy set as well. And Glenn Wool, the amazing Canadian comedian, will be there. And like that. Then the 22nd of May, we'll be at the uh, Theater de Ness, which is in Amsterdam, right next to the Red Light District. I think it's on the border of the Red Light District. And uh, we'll be meeting in the alley during the interval. We'll be meeting in the alley during the interval of that podcast. And then the 26th will be at the Hay Festival. I don't think there's a meeting in the alley at the Hay Festival. I think you have to push Barbara Tuckman and Stephen Fry out of the way to get to uh, another fancy author. Um, we'll probably be having Sherry in, in the gun room at the Hay Festival. That's the 26th. Then uh, I'm back in the United States uh, with uh, the Who's Line guys, and we're doing um, uh, Wisconsin, I think. Go on my website or Who's Live anyway. And then Ryan and me are going to be in Vancouver and Victoria uh, the first weekend of June doing a two-man show called On the Couch where we improvise and bring people out of the audience and have surprise guests. And uh, that's a two-hander improv show that me and Ryan Stiles are doing. Ryan Stiles is the tall one on Whose Line Is It Anyway. Not the older fellow, not the black guy, and not the tall black girl. And uh, <coughs> so... <laughs> Excuse me. You can go to my website, gregproops.com, and look up any of those fine dates. Is there going to be a boring preachy part? <clears throat> ever, ever so briefly, there's going to be a boring preachy part. And here it is right now. Um, well, first of all, this letter from Steve, because he wrote me. You said there was going to be questions. I lied. I lied! Steve writes, one... You frequently referred to Pope Francis as a Franciscan. While he's taken the name of Francis, he is in fact a member of the Society of Jesus, i.e. the Jesuits. Colloquially revered as the smartest priest in the world and not the Franciscans. Yes, you are right, Steve. He is. I was on uh, John Fuglesang, uh, had me on the Stephanie Miller show this morning. John Fuglesang is a comic of some 
skill and uh, a screaming liberal. His mother was a nun and his father was a Franciscan. So he knows his scriptures backwards and forwards. And he would, he assured me indeed that Pope, uh, whose name is Jorge. And he said that he wished the Pope had retained the name Jorge. So he could freak out white people in the Western world, took the name Francis as a nod to uh, the Franciscans. However, it's very rare that popes are Jesuit. They're often not Jesuits because Jesuits are considered the intellectual wing of Catholicism. Our governor of California is a Jesuit, uh, Jerry Brown. He studied at seminary. I don't know if he, he's not a priest, but he definitely studied at Jesuit seminary. What do the Jesuits say? Give us the boy and we'll give you the man. You know, the Catholic church should really rethink some of their slogans. <laughs> Uh, it was Jerry Sandusky. I can never remember who said it, but one of, oh, really, Greg? That's a joke? That's humorous now? How about some hilarious rape jokes as well? Uh, number two, uh, and I'm saying number two because that's what the letter says. One, brackets, two, brackets. In describing your morning routine recently, you mentioned vespers. Vespers are said at sunset. Matins and louds are said in the morning. Thank you. I meant matins. I didn't mean vespers. Vespers are said at sunset. I feel we have a Catholic on the line here. What I meant uh, in my morning routine, I meant my evening poutine, and I'll be having it at the hotel I stay at in Halifax because there's a pizza place that delivers poutine there. And at about three in the morning after you've had a few, wow, what you can do with a plastic fork to that poutine, it is I mean, it's at that point, the gravy's almost congealed. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a fight against time. It's the sincerest of apologies if you've already addressed these transgressions. I'm generally, I don't eat the poutine in Vancouver as much because I don't think you have to. I didn't have it, for instance, when we were uh, at the Hard Rock and Coquitlam last time. Um, but we did have a, a tremendous uh, steaks. But I, I just feel like Eastern Canada. But all of you can have it in Western Canada. I mean, if you're from Calgary or the Prairie, you're going to have it. Sincerest of apologies if you've already... I mean, Canada is a kind of place where if you go to the airport and you order french fries, they go, would you like gravy on them? And you're like, uh, hell yes, I'd like gravy on them. Uh, if you've already... Also, A&W. If you like A&W, the chain A&W, Canada's full of them still. I think it's Canadian. I don't know why, but Canada's full of A&Ws and Tim Hortons. Sincerest of apologies if you've already addressed these transgressions. I wouldn't have called them transgressions. I'd have said they were simple errors, but if you feel I've transgressed against the Lord and stuff, I'm generally two or three episodes behind. No, I haven't addressed it. I'm addressing it with you right now, Steve. A couple of, in any case, and this is written brilliantly, a couple of, with a, with a, um, uh, an, uh, not an asterisk, with a, a, um, a quotation, a couple of Hail Marys and Our Father and a humble act of contrition will set everything right. Thank you for that. Hail Mary, full of grace, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And here's my act of contrition. I won't eat poutine till I get to Halifax. <laughs> and when I do, I'll eat it with a real fork. Your loyal fan, Steve. Thank you. Uh, the podcast is, thank you, what, thank you for that. And what you're doing is actually kind of important. Thank you. By all means, continue. Exclamation point, Steve. No one can see me do this. I'm crossing out the exclamation point. Your emphasis was, was known to me. If you tell me what I'm doing is kind of important, by all means continue. I get that you mean it with an exclamation point. Uh, BBC News. This is from the BBC News page. My wife Jennifer gave me this. Wall Street average bonus rose 15% in 2013. We're into the boring preachy part. Boring preachy part. King of the boring preachy part. 
The Wall Street average bonus rose 15% in 2013. By the way, as of the date of this broad, uh, podcast, um, a, a building in Harlem blew up in a gas explosion and killed a bunch of people uh, in an unbelievable tragedy for Harlem. And I just wanted you to know that that happened, that the gas pipes in Harlem are not up to code, but Wall Street bonuses rose 15% last year. Let me ask you something. Did your income rise 15%? Mine did not. Uh, I'm presuming yours did not either. Wall Street bonuses rose 15% to the highest level since the global financial crisis. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. Who caused the global financial crisis? That would be Wall Street. That's who caused it, okay? Why should they be getting bonuses? The average bonus rose to, and I hope you're sitting. If you're driving, I hope you're standing. $164,530. That's a one-year bonus, you guys. 99,000 quid, the British paper puts, with total bonus payments rising to 26.7 billion, state comptroller Thomas D. Napoli estimated. His report said the payments were boosted in part by, quote, compensation deferred from prior years. That's how they're doing it now. They're deferring compensation, but they're still paying themselves far too much. It focuses only on bonuses paid to bankers and brokers in New York City. It had a profitable 2013. By the way, know this. All oil companies, insurance companies, and brokerage firms had record years last year, while we didn't. You, as an individual, didn't. And, and they're the people who are paying for all the ads that want you to oppose the Affordable Care Act. They're the people paying for the Cadillac ads on TV, uh, trying to get you to buy a $75,000 hybrid while you watch the Olympics. They're the people insisting that... Uh, uh, welfare be cut, that food stamps be cut, that there be drug provision put into food stamps bills, that the unemployment benefits aren't extended. These are the same people who are paying politicians to vote against these things, and they are giving themselves an average of $164,000 as a bonus. Instead, employees should be forced to consider the future prospects of the investments they make. The regulators believe uh, that since the global financial crisis unfolded, regulators have called on Wall Street's banks to, to offer longer-term bonus structures. That would prevent employees from making high-risk investments that boost their bonuses in one year. Nothing will prevent them from doing that other than revoking all of the laws that they put into practice because they're allowed to write the laws that go into law. As a result, there's been a shift toward deferred, comp uh, deferred compensation. Uh, Wall Street continues to demonstrate resilience as it evolves in a changing regulatory environment, said Mr. DiNapoli. Resilience or untrammeled fucking greed that takes nothing else into account except for its own malfeasance and venality. Resilience is when you bounce back from losing your job and you find another one. Resilience is when you work for minimum wage and somehow you make away raising a family in this world. Paying yourself extortionate bonuses is not resilience. It's hideousness uh, of, of the highest caliber. So shame on you if you are one of these giant Wall Street maimens. And I'm talking about you. Lloyd Blankfein and Jamie Dimon and all these people who felt so beleaguered and put upon. We've had to hear billionaires bitch so much this year because they're being asked to pay the smallest amount into the common well. And um, all I have to say is one bite and two moi. If I was a lobster in Halifax, I'd say in French, mangez-moi. 
Caribbean nations prepare demand for slavery reparations. My wife gave me this. It's from the Guardian newspaper. Heads of 15 Caribbean nations will gather in St. Vincent on Monday. Well, they'll have already gathered by the reading of this. To unveil a plan demanding reparations from Europe for the enduring suffering inflicted by the Atlantic slave trade. In an interview with the Guardian, Sir Hilary Beckles, that's a name. Uh, I'm changing my name to Sir Hilary Pruples who chairs the reparations task force charged with framing the 10 demands said the plan would set out areas of dialogue with former slave trading nations. Would you like to know who the former slave trading nations are? The UK, France, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. I didn't know Norway, Sweden, Denmark. Yeah, they did. And they all have principalities and former colonies in the Caribbean, even Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Yeah. Um, the Netherlands has Aruba, Uh, There are Swedish and Danish islands in the Caribbean. Spain, Portugal, the UK, and France, of course, dominate the Caribbean, uh, as well as the United States has lots of territories in the Caribbean. If you've been to the Caribbean, you know, one, it's exquisite. Two, the people are fabulous. Three, it's paradise. Um, And four, the poverty's grinding, absolutely grinding. I've been to Barbados. I've been to Jamaica. I've been to St. Thomas, and I've been to St. Martin, and Belize and in all uh, but Belize is a Central American nation yeah yeah but it's also a stop on the Caribbean journey we've also been to Roatan off Honduras when you see the kind of conditions people are living in the tin shacks that they live in the unbelievable uh, holes on the side of the road the hideous bustas that they're forced to endure while everyone else goes down there to party from the first world it's really shocking uh, and I don't think slave reparations are out of line at this point all of those islands were built by slaves. All of the infrastructure of those islands were built by slaves. People were imported to those islands. The original people of the Caribbean, the Caribs, were wiped out immediately. Uh, by, by the time Cortez was there, there's very few natives left. Within, uh, by the time Columbus, when Columbus gets there, within 50 years, you could say that almost all Caribbean natives, uh, the Arawaks, uh, the Caribs, they're all Gone, and the Caribs were the scary ones. The Caribs were the ones who uh, ate people and 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 terrorized the other islands. Um, however, it was theirs, wasn't it? And they didn't have things like <coughs> um, the idea of uh, uh, having to dig gold out of the ground for the Spanish, which is what Columbus set the islanders to do the moment he got to the New World, um, and. They had to wear uh, a bell around their neck, and they also had a quota of gold that they had to produce each month. Uh, Otherwise, they were beaten and executed and things like that. What the European countries and what America did to the Caribbean is unconscionable, and it's about time we coughed up some money. In case you think slave reparations are after the fact and we should get over it, and that's ancient history, mm, you're wrong. The British media has been obsessed with suggesting we can expect billions of dollars to be extracted from European states. Contrary to the British media, we're not exclusively concerned with financial transactions. We're concerned more with justice for the people who continue to suffer harm at so many levels of social life. This is Sir Hilary Beckles, the head of the reparations task force. He also tried to assuage fears. This is opening a can of worms leading to litigation. That's not our aim. Our aim is to open a dialogue with the European states. 
the 10-point plan among the demands on the former slave trade nations provide diplomatic help to persuade countries such as Ghana and Ethiopia to offer citizenship to the children of people from the Caribbean who returned to Africa. Some 30,000 have made such a journey and have been offered generous settlement packages, but lack of citizenship rights for their children is causing difficulties. Devise a development strategy to help improve the lives of poor communities in the Caribbean, still devastated by the after-effects of slavery. Support cultural exchanges between the Caribbean and West Africa. Back literacy drives to improve education levels that are still dire in many Caribbean communities and provide medical assistance to the region that's struggling from high levels of chronic diseases such as hypertension and type 2 diabetes that the CARICOM Reparations Commission links to the fallout from slavery. One of the most contentious demands will be for European countries to issue an unqualified apology for what they did in shipping millions of men, women, and children from Africa to the Caribbean and America in the 17th and 18th centuries. Oh yes, this country was built by slaves. New York City was built by slaves. I'm not talking about some sort of ephemeral, vague notion of slavery. I'm talking about, like in the movie 12 Years a Slave, which I hope you saw, slaves built Wall Street. Slaves built the White House when Obama was inaugurated the first time and there was a bunch of black people dancing on the lawn in celebration. Imagine the uh, psychological repercussions of knowing, as my friend Warren Thomas once said when David Feldman asked, and I know I've said this before in the show, uh, David Feldman, the comedian, said to my friend Warren Thomas, who was black, um, why, why, do you, why don't black people burn America down? And he went, David, we don't hate America. We built it. Uh, and you need to remember that, uh, and that the Chinese were brought over on the West Coast and forced to build the Union Pacific Railroad and were held in virtual bondage on this coast. So ain't nobody innocent, uh, as uh, Denzel Washington says in the movie Glory. It was disgraceful to speak of regret rather than to apologize, Beckel said. That was a disrespectful act because Tony Blair said the slave trade was a matter of deep sorrow and regret, but he didn't apologize for it. And all they want is a simple apology. The most positive response has come from Sweden, of course, because Sweden has enlightened politics. Uh, They have respect for the process and reparations. The UK government has expressed skepticism with the Foreign Office telling The Guardian that we do not see reparations as the answer. Instead, we should concentrate on identifying ways forward. Um, This is the UK government who also saw the answer to the riots of poor people from several years ago to put a bunch of poor people in jail. That was their response to the uh, economic inequities of their own country. So it's not uh, difficult to see that that would be their response to paying out any reparations. In any case, uh, one last item and then we'll go. Um, Beckel's great-great-grandmother was a cumberbatch. Uh, Beckles is a historian who's vice chancellor of the University of the West Indies in Barbados. The reparations issue is personal. His great-great-grandparents were slaves on the Barbadian plantation owned by ancestors of the British actor Benedict Cumberbatch to bring everything back to Benedict Cumberbatch, who was photobombing people at the Oscars. Cumberbatch plays the plantation owner in the Oscar-winning film 12 Years a Slave, said he took on a previous role as an abolitionist William Pitt the Younger as a sort of apology for his family's involvement in the slave trade. Beckel said that 12 Years a Trade, uh, 12 Years a Slave from the Porpoise of Fruititude, was directed by Steve McQueen, a Briton of Grenadian descent, and starred Chiwetel um, Ejiofor, a Briton of Nigerian descent, had made a very important step in the right direction in its unstinting portrayal of the brutality of slavery. He said he would like to see a similar treatment of the subject from perspective of Britain rather than America. Well, that will be the day uh, when that happens. Also remember what Steve McQueen said when he accepted his Oscar. There's 
tens, I would say 20 something million people in slavery in the world right now. And they're largely women and children and they're mostly in Asia, but it happens all the time and it happens in this country as well. And on that happy note, uh, I'd like to leave you with that. Um, does it mean you should never go to the Caribbean? No. What it means is you should give it some thought, and that's all. And maybe watch the movie 12 Years a Slave, and try to get right in your mind if you're an American that slavery is an enduring condition, that it goes on, and that there are many types of slavery. There's slavery where people are bought and sold. There's also the slavery of receiving a wage so low and having um, no health care in your life that you are a wage slave. In other words, you work for a giant company, whether it's McDonald's or Walmart or whoever you want to say, and that your wages are so low because they don't give you minimum wage and they don't pay you overtime and they don't give you any kind of health care plan, that you are in fact a slave to those jobs because you cannot afford to do anything else. Um, and that's where, uh, I, that's what I'm always harping about on this show. The two biggest problems facing the world are the suppression of women and women's rights. And what that speaks directly to uh, economic inequality because women make less than men and women are always at the brunt of all of this. And women are largely uh, the slave population of the world. And on that happy note, I bid you goodbye and adieu. Remember every page that you turn, I hope is a satchel page and that every bell that rings for you is a cool papa bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're giants, batting coach, Barry bonds. My name's Greg Cruz. This is the smartest man in the world. You've been the smartest part of the world. I love you.